0: Happy Monday and... Happy President's Day, my friends. And uh, typically, President's Day isn't really a holiday celebrated by libertarians, but I did actually spend some time with a few Libertarian Party presidential candidates this past weekend at the California State Libertarian Party Convention. I also got to meet the owner of today's sponsor, North Spokane Hemp Company. That's right. It's Spokane, not Spokane, as I've been saying for the last couple of weeks. And if you use CBD products or you've been wanting to try some, there is no better time than right now, because for just two more weeks, we have a very, very special limited time promotion on CBD products from the North Spokane Hemp Company. Right now, if you go to NorthSpokaneCBD.com and use discount code LIONS, you will get 25%. Yes, that's right. 25% off your order. This is only good through the end of February, so you're really going to want to act now. CBD is great for things like aches, pains, inflammation, uh, insomnia, all sorts of stuff. So we encourage you to do some research about CBD. And if you do want to try some products, head over to North Spokane. That's SP and use discount code lions at checkout. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your
1: host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire.
0: My guest today is a senior research fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research, better known as AIER. We had a very brief interview in person at last year's PorkFest, and now he is getting the formal Lions of Liberty Mark Claire interview treatment. I'm very, very pleased to welcome Max Gulker. Max, are you ready to roar? You know, for a long time
1: I didn't think I was and and slowly but surely I've become more and more ready, and I think today I am ready to roar.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, you know, I, I usually start off my interviews asking people how they first got into the ideas of liberty, but that's that's actually going to be a bit of the subject that we're talking about throughout today. So uh, first I want to kind of get a little bit uh, to, to know a little bit more about your pre-libertarian views. Where were you before you became a libertarian and, and kind of how did you get to that point?
1: Absolutely. And I think um, in terms of reaching new people, I have maybe a little bit of value add in the sense that I don't have a normal path, um, I, it, a, a stereotypical path, if you will, towards right. libertarianism that a lot of people have where they're teenagers and they discover certain books and go to certain schools. Um, I didn't do any of that, actually. I I think the first important thing to know is that I was born in, um, in conservative red state Indiana to parents who were very left-wing, post-hippie New Yorker parents um, who had moved to Indiana to to around Purdue University to have me. So right from the jump, I was sort of in these two worlds and could see, you know, in a very outspoken way, what my parents thought is different. And, you know, I could see what my friends and where I was, how that was different too. And I think I I, I thought, well, I, I liked them both. So What am I going to do about that? And I think ever since then, I've been very interested in how people disagree and in not necessarily assuming that disagreement is because one side is stupid or evil or poorly motivated. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that comes from from a young age. I would say growing up and into young adulthood – I, th- I would say I was what you would call center left. I was I was a democratic voter. I didn't necessarily have the same type of um, you know, kind of 60s era radicalism that my that my parents had vestiges of. I mean, these were very much suburban parents at this point too. But um and 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 I also think that my economics education as I started college kind of did uh, present to me at least one argument for the value of free markets I don't think it's the correct argument for the value of free markets anymore which we can get to but um, I was I was pretty reliably center left and that was really the demographic I was around um, and and you know and still am socially in a lot of ways which is, made for some interesting um, discussions in the last few years.
0: Just to further define that a little yeah. bit, because these terms are always evolving. What's, yeah. what's center left? What's far left? Would you say you were just someone who, who uh, you know, aligned with Democrat views or just kind of thought that the government had a role in certain things? So I would say that this is actually really important, is
1: I think people get – Um, moral compasses, and and this is obviously an approximation of the way we think about morality, and I don't want to act like I'm an expert on that, but, you know, I think think parents can instill moral compasses in children, and they're not necessarily to the exclusion of other things, but they can be different in terms of priorities than other people, and, you know, in terms of, like, rank-and-file left-wing folks that I was growing up with, the moral compass that I heard from them at least and that I that I think is theirs is you know how are these things going to affect the least fortunate among us and I know that a lot of times we like to assume different motives than that and of course there's tribalism and there's feelings of superiority at play and there's all sorts of things like there is with any type of politics but at the same time that's kind of the way I automatically learn to think. And I think people now do a double take. If I say something like I'm a libertarian because I want to help poor people or something like that. (laughs) But I really do. Libertarians
0: hated poor people. So right, right. Exactly.
1: They're shocked. (laughs) Um, And and, and at the same time, if they're all universally shocked by it, it means we have to do something different, (laughs) whether or not we deserve to have to do something different.
0: There's definitely a marketing problem. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. And so, um, and, and, and so I think I had that, but then I think I did have, um, the sort of Indiana side of things that maybe moderated me a little bit. And so I think I was pretty much, you know, I wasn't a super politically involved kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I supported the Democrats. I, you know, it's, it's, I think it's actually Martin Luther King day today. And my, you know, my dad was at that speech in Washington, DC. That's very famous. Um, And and that part of it, some of that, I think, stuck with me um, throughout. Um, But I would say that as I started taking more economics in college, um, I started pushing back against some of those ideas of big programs and do they really work, Um, although not enough. I think I was always honestly put off by the social conservatism that the Republican Party was putting out there that um was alternately you know now it's immigrants it was gays it was abortion it was you know different things at different times that are kind of you know the coalition on that side of the aisle and so i think i identified as a democrat primarily for that reason even as increasingly i saw these bigger economic um questions as as things that that their answers to weren't really any better i didn't see anything great from the Republican party on those either. But um, I think now is the time to get to my graduate education, which is, I went to Stanford university, which um, if you're familiar with academic uh, economics and you listen to this podcast, Stanford is like the George Mason of like normal economics. No, I'm just Not kidding. Um, <laughs> and um, that it, it, I received a very quantitative, mathematical, um, you know, education in economics. And now it's funny. I'm around people who know a lot more about political theory, intellectual history, philosophy. And I just laughed to myself because we learned none of that in grad school. Oh, yeah. and, <laughs> um, and, and 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 I'm not here to talk about which, which way is better. I think, it, honestly, if people were comfortable enough to combine them and to, you know, and, and, and not worry about it, I think that would be wonderful. But um, all that to say, you know, you know, Paul Krugman had been at Stanford a couple of years before I got there and people didn't like that he was writing this New York times column when I was there, but it's not because they were one side of the aisle or not. It was because they felt he had become political. Right. And that was sort of the attitude of the people who taught me the field was that they were not political and and where we wind up now is more explicitly political and i would say to some extent they're kidding themselves a little bit when um when they say they're not political i don't know i don't necessarily think it's imp- it's, it's impossible to be fully not political
0: i mean it's impossible to separate it in fully you know
1: exactly
0: um and I uh, got training as
1: an applied microeconomist, um, and I quickly saw that academia was not for me. Um, I first of all, the hyper statistical mathematical kind of focus of it. Um, you know, I thought I was good. I, I thought I was good at math before I got there, and then I found out what the difference between being like 99th percentile in math and like freakishly 99.999 percentile in <laughs> math is looked around and said, oh, these people are better at this than me. Um, And so I left academia and I went to the private sector for um, a lot of years. And it's actually in those years when I started almost through a series of happy accidents, stumbling upon things that made me start asking questions that kind of put us on the path to where we are now.
0: So, so what what exactly was it that sent you down this uh, dark and dangerous path towards the end? <laughs> of this is This liver? dark and dangerous... I don't want to start talking about pills here, but... but eventually um, led you to this podcast. I mean, it, this, is, this is where it all um, is. So um, really
1: for me, the number one thing, and I think for a lot of economists out there, I, you know, I, I, I think the things that I found are the things everybody finds in a way. And so it's not um, earth shattering to a lot of people, but I think it is important in the sense that this can work after somebody's already gotten a lot of their education. But um, the uh, the F.A. Hayek paper from the 1940s uh, that he wrote in the American Economic Review, it was called The Use of Knowledge in Society. And for, for your viewers, they probably know who F.A. Hayek is. They um, probably understand that he is this person who liked free markets, who battled Keynes. Um, I think... From what I've seen in you know the, the, the limited amount and maybe I should have seen even more in the last uh, decade or a little less I've seen I think this guy was the, the greatest economist of the 20th century, and it wasn't necessarily for the reasons that even some of his biggest fans think. Um, he saw the economy very intuitively, almost without even trying, as this dynamic network that was constantly evolving, that was complex that um, had things that happened in it, which he called emergent order, which were structures that sort of arose from all these individuals making decisions that you would never kind of sit there and say, oh, that's what's gonna happen if these million people do that because our brains aren't equipped to do that. Um, But Hayek's brain intuitively was equipped to kind of think through those things in ways that I think we have to really almost like turn a piece of our brain on when when we think about it. And that's actually a lot of why I think we have trouble, um, explaining the virtues of free markets to some people. And I'll get to that too. But, um, at the same time I, I, I was, I was working in, um, what's called economic consulting, which is I was working for lawyers basically in big litigation and both sides will hire some famous economist. not me. I'm the guy working, you know, (laughs) behind them. Um, to say, well, the economics says that we're clearly right in this case, you know, and, um, and economics is a field where you can do that. Um, and, and that's not, um, ultimately the path I decided on, but, um, I, I, at some point during one of those cases, I stumbled upon that paper and that was the closest thing I've ever had to like an aha moment, um, where everything kind of changed. And let me just very quickly, um, just give you the kernel of the idea that's, sure. that's, that's in it, um, and we won't get deep into it, is I'll actually give it to you in terms of an example, um, which is that suppose the government said, well, we've got these unemployed people, and we don't like that. And we've got, um, the you know, a lot of them are chronically unemployed, doesn't look like we're going to be able to find them jobs, there's these boom and bust cycles, that leads to even more unemployment why don't we just be in charge of finding everybody a job? So why don't in the center from the top down, we're going to give everybody a job.
0: It's not that hypothetical so, to a lot of the, at least a lot of the Democrats running for running for president. Well,
1: right I now. know. Well, the, I've written actually in both the wall street journal and, um, a, a self published here kind of uh, paper about the job guarantee. Now, know, of course the job guarantee is optional. It's it's, if you don't have a job, you can get one from the government, but that, that has all sorts of problems too. Uh, if anything, my example here is a tiny bit even more severe. Um, it's sort of everybody. But it, it, the, the question we're thinking about is what would happen if the government, from the top down, decided where everybody was going to work, allocated all those resources, right? And, you know, put yourself in the government's shoes. And now, you know, I want everybody to take a deep breath here because this this example does not involve the government being incompetent or evil. What? Okay. <laughs> everybody calm down. Um, the, and, and that's actually why it's a more damning critique in some ways is because it, it's not a matter of getting the right people in there. So let's say the government puts together an office of only the most well-meaning, talented bureaucrats mm-hmm. who are going to match everybody to a job right now. They've got over 300 million people, or, you know, I don't know how many are working age, but the, you know, hundreds of millions of people, hundreds of millions of jobs, so they're not really going to have much time to get to know you, right? And they're not really going to have much time to get to know the job and talk to your potential boss about what it might require. So practically speaking, you know, the best they're going to do is they're going to ask for a resume. And, you know, so you're going to give them like a one-page resume. And um, the jobs, each job is going to give them like a one-page description of the job. And then they're going to match everybody. Think about where you would wind up. You know, only the best intentions, only the best, but but think about where you would wind up. And I've never had a single person say to me, oh, I'd wind up much better off than I am now. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. You know, I think for me, I think if they saw Stanford PhD and and whatnot, I would be like writing one of those plans for Elizabeth Warren right now or something like that. Um, (laughs) and, and, And that's exactly the point is what are they missing? Um, in that example, mm-hmm. they are missing the knowledge that each of us has about ourselves and the people immediately around us—the kind of local knowledge or dispersed knowledge, as as Hayek
0: says—which is always and, evolving and always changing because we're exactly. humans and we're always evolving and always changing.
1: Exactly, and that's that's part of why you know I'm here instead of writing some plan for Elizabeth Warren is because my life took several turns, which I could then respond to because I had that decision-making power. Um, over my my labor, I guess, and if you step back and think, that pretty much and 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 you know, Ludwig von Mises, another Aust- Austrian economist who was a mentor of Hayek's, had had done some thinking along similar lines, and Adam Smith had done some thinking along similar lines, but nobody had sort of formulated it in that direct a way. And and what he's saying basically is that some office of central planning, which is what a truly socialist economy, uh, uh, economy needs, is necessarily going to be throwing away so much information that's on the ground about p- what people want, what they need, what they can do, who they can talk to, all of these things. In fact, some of it that you can't even codify and write down and sort of you know, hand up the ladder to the top. And so if you think about it almost from like an example of like a computer – Right. They're going to be sitting there calculating out the the, the outcomes with, you know, 90 percent, 99 percent of a blindfold on. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a free market is the only way to basically use all of that information. Um, another way of saying it is that one of the properties of individual freedom that's very important that makes our economy go is we know who we can best cooperate with, right? Because we know ourselves and we know the people around us, right? It's somebody who's assigning that is naturally going to make much worse decisions. And, you know, a lot of people encounter that paper. That's a famous paper. Um, It's, uh, you know, an important one for a lot of libertarians, I'd say. Um, For whatever reason, that was the moment, well, it was probably because it was about 2009, and I said I was a, you know, center-left kind of Democrat voter. I didn't like President Bush. Um, still don't. Um, and, you know, this guy Obama got elected, and I said, oh, well, he seems like he's going to, you know, bring, like, good governance and blah, blah, blah. To, and, and, and a year later, I'm sitting there looking at it.
0: I mean, if and you believe no in different. the concept of, of government and, and believe in the ideas of, you know, if we get the best people, then they can do the best thing. Right. Obama certainly seems to like check all the boxes of the best
1: right. People. And that's kind of what I thought. I thought, well, here we go. You know, we, we, we finally got the right guy in here. Um, and when I saw not only that it wasn't going well, but that it seemed to not be going well in the same ways that that the it just seemed like the Democrat and Republican parties had been flipped. Um That to me said, oh, you know, well, I don't, I I think maybe because of my upbringing and because of the stuff I was starting to read, I was in a good position to, instead of saying, well, it's those damn Republicans' fault, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I instead said, maybe it's not possible to be a good president, Mm -hmm. right? Maybe, maybe there aren't people that we could, you know, pluck out of somewhere in the country who would, who would do a good job in terms of addressing the sort of complex, large scale social problems that we sit there saying, we can't do this anymore, you know? And so that uh, combined with, um, the early Hayek stuff I got uh, exposed to combined with a little bit more on what's called complexity economics, which is actually very similar to a lot of the Austrian reasoning. Um, it just is much more mathematical. Um, All of those things together basically made me politically very disinterested, (laughs) Um, (laughs) basically made me say, "Yeah, we're not going to get anywhere with this. Right. Um, But I never really considered um, the alternative. And so here's another important piece of perspective I have maybe for some of our listeners. Um, And and, and it's um, it's one I'm trying to impress on even some of my fellow academics in this space is that my education at Stanford, my PhD education had nothing to do with anything that quote unquote free market economists or the economists you study or the work really we do at AIER had almost nothing to do with each other. Um, And I don't think we heard the name Hayek once in five years. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew who he was. Um, I don't think I'd ever heard the name Ludwig von Mises. I don't think I knew who he was. Um, I think the first time I heard that name was I think around like 2012. I dated a girl who was into all this stuff for a little while. And I think that was like, honestly, my first exposure.
0: I have like a hundred, um, uh, hundreds of listeners right now saying, wait, what's this girl's name? There's a girl. That's yeah. yeah, yeah like we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to move past that. <laughs> um, and, um, <laughs> Where is and, this unicorn? No, I, I don't. Yeah.
1: I, 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 don't think. It, no, I think, I think for everyone's um,
0: sake, you should keep her identity. In a secret.
1: <laughs> anyway. Um, So, so from there, so, so all that to say, we're speaking sort of a different language. And I think that, um, well, well, let me just fast forward a little bit and just to just complete the like how I got here thing, which is that um, I was in New York doing this consulting for many years. Um, I started working on financial litigation around 2008, 2009. That was a pretty interesting time to do that. Um, got to see some front row seats to some of the, 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 the more you know the eye-opening events that took place. Um, that wasn't really the part of economics that I liked. Um, I'm much more interested in technology and markets and competition. And so I ended up doing a similar job with a different firm that was more geared towards antitrust and specifically a lot of tech antitrust. Um, and, and I've always kind of had one foot in that technology space. I, I tell people sometimes that, um, that, that if politicians stopped having such bad ideas, I could have time to concentrate on that. But, um, I, I think that, well, so, so I was, so for many years, I wasn't really politically interested. And I think I got to the point where I was just done with New York city and I was done with that job and I didn't want my clients to be new york city law partners anymore um uh, elizabeth warren is actually personality wise quite like uh like new york city law partner uh that that, that's how i always describe not politically but um the sort of well this needs to be true so go
0: find this and do it now kind of kind of thing start Uh, with the conclusion and then uh yeah yeah and 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 that
1: is you know I've written some things that are kind of hard on that, that industry ever since, and, and I don't want to pretend that there aren't some great people in that industry, but, but the legal profession and the economics profession have some problems when they come together in terms of the level of certainty that people want out of things and, versus the fact that you can get almost any answer you want if you do it a certain way. Um, and that is, And that is a problem, and that's something we have a hard time avoiding because it's a really complex field. So um, I end up uh, retiring to the woods in, in Western Massachusetts. Now, um, we're, we're AIER is located in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, which is about two and a half hours both from New York and Boston. It's a lovely area that's beautiful, that also has a lot of culture because it's pretty close to these cities. And, um, and I end up here, and one of the first things I pick up is the new president's book, uh, which is Private Governance. It's called
0: and that would be Ed Stringham who has actually been on this program discussing that very book before. So I'll link to that in today's show notes.
1: Good. Um, Excellent. Uh, Yes. And he can, he can, he can go through it more than me and probably do his dramatic acting while he, while he does it. Um, But um, so, so, so when I started looking at that book and it's a lot of very basic examples, but I'll get into sort of why that's important in a minute. Um, I started thinking to myself, OK, we can have right, the lack of government, anarchy, you know, libertarianism taken to its extreme, whatever, isn't necessarily only a subtractive phenomenon. It isn't only removing the government. It's it's at least as an economist for me, I'm very interested in what what comes in at that point. Right. And that is a way that a lot a lot of people are stuck isn't this thinking that if there's some issue out there in society, that's not obviously something that a market, you know, that a market would handle, then either we elect people to this federal government, to this nation state that we have out here, and they're going to do something about it, or we do nothing. And that seems to be like scratching the surface mm-hmm. of, um, of, uh, of, what we could possibly do. And, we had a little conference, I think in the first year I was here that built on that a little bit and kind of private governance institutions. And I started thinking to myself, you know, Oh my gosh, these could evolve the ways that we voluntarily govern ourselves, governance, right. Rather than government, um, could, could evolve in the way that entrepreneurship and market solutions evolve that, that if we only let them, we would almost by definition, um, wind up somewhere better than, than we are now. And that to me sort of completed the circle is, you know, I still think that um, the rank and file progressive on the street, I'm not talking about Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or their loudest mouthpieces on the internet. I'm talking about, you know, someone like my parents or just people who vote Democrat. Um, I think that deep down they have, good motivations, which are just to help people who don't have access to healthcare or education or opportunity or that type of thing. And they can go very far astray with that, um, as can people of all political persuasions. But that's when it really clicked to me that as libertarians, we can think about how a society does that stuff better, not doesn't do it or doesn't need to do it, but does it better than... um, than uh, than what we have now which relies on the federal government and so that really cemented for me um that these are changes that we need to make and and i have to say i've been very lucky with ed and with jeffrey tucker here who you interviewed at the same time as me at at, at pork fest i was sitting there saying jeffrey tell them to have me on too um I, 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 they've really um, given me a lot of freedom to write about this stuff and try to present it in ways that say to someone who's been a libertarian since they were 14 years old and they read Atlas Shrugged and it really spoke to them and you know uh, somebody who's taken a more typical path, like we can worry about these issues and we can worry about them voluntarily and that who, whoever chooses to can and we can do it better than the opposition. So there's no need to sit there and say, well, this isn't a problem. Well, this isn't, you know, and, 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 and that, that's not without its challenges, which I'll certainly get to, but that's what really got me on board. And so that's a different set of circumstances. And I realized that my Outlook is a lot more sort of pragmatic than a lot of people's would would have a lot more of like an individualistic morality kind of component to it, which I think is good. It's just not the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. Right. Um, but I've wound up in the same place. And I think that says something about society and where we need to go.
0: Hey, hey, Lions, I got to take a quick time out to tell you a little bit more about our new sponsors at North Spokane Hemp Company. Again, that's Spokane, not Spokane. Several weeks of mea culpa on me for that one. But who would ever know? Who would ever know that it's pronounced Spokane unless you're from that area? But regardless, our sponsors at North Spokane Hemp Company have some of the finest CBD products you are going to find. They are sourced directly from the farms. And they are third-party tested, so you know you're getting the highest quality product possible. And these guys have everything you could want in terms of CBD products. They've got tinctures. They've got flour. They've even got some CBD products for pets. That's right. Your little puppy can have some CBD. And I've got a husky, a big old husky that's starting to get a little older, starting to get a little arthritis, and I'm going to be using some of these North Spokane CBD products on my big boy, on my big hawk. So I will report back here for the results, but you might not have time to wait for those results if you want to get the best possible deal, because we have a very special promotion running through the end of February, whereupon if you use discount code LIONS at checkout, you will get 25%, that is a massive 25% off your order. Order. We can only provide this discount through the end of February. It is a very limited time promotion, so head over to North CBD.com. right now. They also have free shipping for any order over $50. You really can't go wrong. If you're looking to try out CBD products or you're already using them, head to CBD.com and use discount code LIONS at checkout. Well, I think that's a pretty good transition, uh, in, into this topic. I want to get into a little bit more with you today. It's, it's kind of funny when I first reached out to you about this, I wanted to do a show about, uh, sort of marketing ideas, these ideas of liberty to the left. And I, you know, I recall Oh yeah. Max Goldberg, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said he sort of came from that area. So that's why I thought of you. And, um, you had brought up, Oh, you surely you're, you're talking about this article. I just wrote, I was like, actually, I don't even know what you're talking about. But yeah. since then I did look into it and you wrote this article that is actually a rebuttal by uh, Tyler Cowan, an economist mm-hmm. who many people think he's considered a quote unquote free market. Uh, economist, we can kind of, uh, you know, you can critique how how much you want to uh, allow him to have that claim, but um, the, basically the article, well, the article is entitled What Libertarian Has, Be- Libertarianism Has Become and Will Become State Capacity Libertarianism, which is probably already uh, giving giving some of my, uh, my listeners some, some reason, uh but uh, you wrote a rebuttal to that article. So maybe you can first break down what Tyler Cowen's article is about and what he's trying to sort of put forward here, which yeah. is very much different than, than the ideas that you put out there in the beginning of this podcast. I will. And
1: and what I'll say about Tyler that impresses me a great deal is that he's written this article that basically says, and I'll get into this a little bit more, okay, libertarians, like it's time to walk back this state thing a little bit. Pretty like, much. You know, it, <laughs> and and he's, gotten old, he's almost gotten nothing but thoughtful, respectful responses to it from a lot of people who have really sat there and thought about things. And uh, that takes a special writer and thinker to be able to do that. So I I don't exactly know how he did it. (laughs) You know, I I can see anybody else writing the article he wrote and being just absolutely trashed on social media. And, and yet we all kind of sat there and said, "Hmm," you know, it got me to tell my story. We actually had several responses to it on our site. It got Jeffrey to, to look at some maybe difficult decisions that were made in his past where he was. And I'll leave it at that. Um, (laughs) And, It it, it got people to really reflect um, a lot. And the thing that to me I had the most trouble with is, and maybe this is because I don't know some very theoretical economic definition of state capacity. To me, what he was arguing for basically sounded like a Mitt Romney style center right kind of kind of outlook on things. He said, "Well, you know, yes, we 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 want free markets and, and individual freedom, but we need a we need a strong state to do that. I'm not saying a big state. I'm saying a strong state. And you know, then he went through. Well, maybe developing countries need a little bit more of a strong state. And and and, and so."
0: That and to, to me, take it to its logical conclusion, then, uh, I mean, from what he says, wouldn't you really want the strongest state possible at all at all times if you're right. you know, going by his definition of strong, which is not totalitarian. He's not arguing for that. But, you know, in some ways, if you keep following it and following it, uh, maybe. Right. And, <laughs> and I that I, this reminds me of um
1: I, I tweeted a few weeks ago when Trump raised the smoking age to 21. I actually wrote something about it later that was much more kind of thought through. But I said, hey, you know. Probably, if you raise the smoking age from 16 to 21, you're going to save some lives if you invest enough in enforcing it. So why don't we raise it to 25, right? Or 30, or you know, why don't we raise it
0: to 115? And then it's the the Murray Rothbard American reducto ad absurdum, or uh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Walter right. Blocky, and they always like to take things to the extreme to to, to kind of illustrate <laughs> the point. Right, right.
1: Um. So I'll actually, I'll, I'll since 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 we're on
0: um, since we're on
1: audio here, I can get out my phone and I can read from sure. my article. Um, Nobody will know, so except quote, for the party where you just told them. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna read you the quote from Cowan, actually, that I think that got me thinking along the lines of the story I just told our, our listeners here, um, which is, um, okay, right. I said, I like reading Cowan. He's one of those writers who makes you think why you disagree and puts into stark relief what's actually important. That moment comes in Cowan's item number five. So he's got this 11-point plan for state capacity libertarianism. Yeah. So Cowan writes, quote, many of the failures of today's America are failures of excess regulation, but many others are failures of state capacity. Our governments cannot address climate change, much improve K 12 education. Fix traffic congestion or improve the quality of the, their discretionary spending.
0: And I apologize right now to any listeners whose eyes are, are literally rolling outside of their head at the moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we all need to sit with this, and uh, it's exposure therapy. Call it, <laughs> we, we call it the
1: much of our physical infrastructure is stagnant or declining in quality. So, in justifying state this is now me again. In justifying state capacity libertarianism, Cowan has committed what I've equally awkwardly called the nation state fallacy. Under this belief taken for granted by even many libertarians, society-level issues are either for the government to address or not to be addressed at all.
0: I think what you're uh, just to interrupt for a second. I think what you're saying yeah. there is is something we often encounter, especially when talking to people from the left, but even from even the right. I mean, I think yeah. this is a general thing about the population where if you don't want something addressed by the government, you don't care about it at all, and you think it's just the problem should just right. exist. You know, that, that that's basically the general consensus of anybody who's who's not a libertarian for the most part. Right,
1: right. And I and I take it one step further, and I te- so so Jeffrey Tucker is my boss, and he's a great mentor, and 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 I I love him to death and i will tease him sometimes when he writes articles about like well plastic straws are great because you know the you know the left wants to ban plastic straws so plastic straws are great here's why plastic straws are great and um, yes that may be true in fact uh, a paper straw cannot stand up to a large iced coffee in the morning and that to me makes it unacceptable right. that said that is not an argument for libertarianism that is an argument for why that's the thing that shouldn't be banned mm-hmm. um, and We do have to take, if we're going to be serious about opposing bans and about the fact that we don't want a society that's built on bans, we have to be comfortable with the fact that there are going to be small failures in those systems, right? That people are sometimes going to do the wrong thing. And this actually speaks to the smoking article that you can maybe put up too. That's, that's, I think, the most recent one I wrote. Um, which is to say that, um, uh, well, I'll, 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 get to the really, the, the theoretical stuff in a second. I'll, I promise you it'll be good. But, um, when we have an age, when the government tells us this is the age that you will smoke at, it's like the decision has been made for us. And it's like, there's this, a, a lot of people hear that as this implicit endorsement by society that you can smoke when you're 18 or 21 and you can't smoke before that. And so when we think about what if there was no smoking age at all, I think a lot of people first go right to, well, that's the government saying everybody should smoke, right? right. That's, that's an endorsement of a six-year-old going and buying a pack of Newports, right? And that's not true. Um, and in fact, what happens when people are forced to make their own difficult decisions is we get this emergent morality that happens out of it that's not too different from something Hayek would talk about, except it's something Adam Smith talked about all the way even before The Wealth of Nations. Um, He wrote basically two very important books in his life. The second was The Wealth of Nations. The first was The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And in very, very approximate terms, it's basically The Wealth of Nations for morality. It's um, talking about how morality is not dictated to us from on high by the church or the king or the clergy, or, or, you know, the local lord or whatever, it, it it arises from each person's ability to empathize with others, to sort of put themselves in the shoes of a neutral observer, to do these things and, and sort of make the decisions on the ground that are right there, that are right there next to them. And you end up with a sort of much more robust set of um, morality. Now, I don't know exactly what would happen if tomorrow they said, no more smoking age, but I do know that, you know, people talk about all the time in Europe um, that when there is no drinking age or a much lower drinking age, there seems to be less of a problem with binge drinking. Um, And that, that is suggestive of kind of the thing I'm talking about. And in broader terms, this is really, I think, part of the way we need to sell libertarian is to me, whether you want to call it libertarianism or classical liberalism or anarchism, to me, it means a comfort with the way society is going to change when people are pretty much allowed to do what they want to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And that doesn't sound very conservative to me. That sounds like a, a, um, an engine for, you know, constant change. And, and evolution, um, and so and, and there's lots of political reasons why when you have two parties, you get things kind of lumped together. But you know, I think a lot of people on the left say, we have to do something, you know, we, we, we have to we see this, this problem, we have to do something. And more often than not, um, doing something involves messing with this process that's happening in, in some subtle way that you can't even predict beforehand but they're never gonna believe that. And I think a lot of what maybe we can do is retest doing something in a way that is letting these processes take hold that, that produce results that are so much better than what we could possibly think of on our own.
0: So that's that's an easy sell for a lot of my audience. Right. And then I think the challenge, which you're well aware of, is how do you take these ideas that, mm. that we find so logical and so rational and then sell them to people coming from that other <laughs> perspective, coming from the left where you did come from? Oh, my gosh. That, that's that's um, the real leap. And that that's, the you know, maybe the answer that you, yeah, you know yeah. how you got there, but how you got there you know, might not yeah. necessarily work for everybody yeah. either. So, you know, I will say
1: personally, I'm not a fan of Trump. I will not be voting for him. I will not be telling other people to vote for him. But... Yeah. Yeah, doing that would turn them if off. If we get like an Elizabeth Warren versus Trump election,
0: I'm worried I'm going to lose friends um, or because- Because you'll have to criticize what she's saying, which to them will mean- be, you, Which she gives me, me
1: more as an economist to do. That. I mean, Trump okay. gives you lots with the trade stuff, but he's now declared victory in this weird way in the trade stuff, which I was actually on uh, TV the other night talking about. But- um, if you look at Elizabeth Warren's website, she has seventy plans. Over seventy plans. The last time I counted. Okay, and this is this is Elizabeth's plans for 70 everything. Seventy right? plans. Wow. <laughs> and, and yeah, and it's funny because my my left wing canary in the coal mine, my mother, um, who you know the one who's forced to have these political debates with me and, and can't assume that I'm that I'm coming from a place of bad faith or something like that. Uh, I a think what money. you mentioned
0: right there is is sometimes the biggest leap to get over is yeah. there seems to be a presumption that because you don't agree with these state solutions that people put forward, that therefore you don't care about the topic and therefore you are heartless and therefore anything you say next exactly. must come from a bad place. Exactly. And so I think, and I think a
1: lot of us respond to that. And it's funny, even me coming from kind of a slightly different place, like when I get on Twitter and people piss me off with that kind of stuff, it's very easy to respond with like, yeah, what's up? Like I don't get care. Out
0: of here, status or yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: and 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 we got to watch that. But um, <laughs> so the funny thing is that I, I had said that that in the way I learned economics, which argues for free markets, does it wrong and is actually very different than the Austrian way that um a lot of the folks in the libertarian economics world that come up through George Mason who read people like Mises and Hayek, um all of that sort of get, which is that, um, and, and, and this, this actually shows what's wrong with Elizabeth Warren because it's funny, people talk about Sanders and Warren and in a lot of ways, to me, Warren looks more radical than Sanders does because she's even more hands-on and micromanaging. But if you look at what she's doing, she's basically taking Econ 101 that we teach everybody and she's like taking it to its logical extreme right? She's taking it all the way. And so Econ 101 says, here's perfect competition. And, you know, here are the assumptions that lead to perfect competition. Everybody has perfect information. The goods are all the same. There's tons of tiny sellers and look at these two supply and demand curves and we're in equilibrium and it's static and it's perfect. And, um, the allocation's the highest it can possibly be. Yay. Okay. Then we move on to, um, the rest of the book. And what's the rest of the book about? It's about market failures. It's about all of the correct ways that markets depart from those assumptions. And the implicit assumption in there is we need to take these markets and make them look more like chapter one, right? That, that, That chapter one is the goal. And actually, there's a great piece by Hayek that's a speech that he gave, I think, in the late 60s that's called in classic Hayek, totally not catchy terms, something like competition is a procedure of discovery or something like that. Um, and it's fantastic. And he says, look, this perfect competition is not only something that's impossible, but it's something we wouldn't want. Like it, it, every, you know, there's no innovation, there's no differentiation. Uh basically, the process competition never has to happen because everything is like locked into place. And that's what we're basing our policy on. And we still are. And that's what Warren is doing with all of these plans is she's saying, well, big tech, you know, they, they too much market power. um, So we're going to break them up. Right. So she's basically saying we're going to treat it like us steel, you know, a hundred years ago. And, And we can debate that. And others, my colleagues will debate that till the cows come home. Amazon and Facebook are not like U.S. Steel. Um, and so there's even a whole second set of arguments for not doing that. And, you know, in terms of network effects, in terms of innovation, um, that kind of thing, that doesn't mean that these companies don't raise real issues for us to think about in society and potentially in mechanisms of private governance that, that you know, that, that, that help us make the right decisions and be secure with our data, but... To say, you know, the left has entered this very interesting time, which I think is associated with a sort of intellectual bankruptcy almost, where they're like pining for the good old days <laughs> in a weird way. Like, like most of my life, that's what conservatives did. Was it was kind of this 1950s, like, and now it seems like people on the left are looking out for this composite character who's kind of a factory worker from like 1953. And uh, it always comes
0: back to the fifties for some reason. Every, it everything does.
1: to come back. I, well, it's, I think, I think it's the war thing. It's uncomfortable as that is. I also hate, by the way, when people on the left say we won world war two. So blank. So we can do this, right. right? We, we, we can, we can deal with climate change because we won world war two. And I want to say, well, first of all, Stalin and his disrespect for his own people's life, probably won world war two, <laughs> but that's an uncomfortable thing. We don't need to talk about that. But, um, that was a situation where a nation state could take all of its resources and aim it at another nation state. Right. Right. Right? The problems we face today are totally different um, and are a product of this, you know, this transition from technology that rewarded big scale and manufacturing that was the first part of the 20th century to this kind of information economy that's networked. And the problems we have are all affecting the choices of billions of people. And there's just no way to do that from the top down. And increasingly the left and the right both want to try to do that in one way or another. And I think that's where a lot of the tension that we see increasing is coming from is that's becoming, that may have been a bad way to do things already. That's becoming an increasingly bad way to do things. And we have to radically rethink, I think the ways that we govern ourselves really, but part of that, I think, at least for me is that doesn't mean we don't govern ourselves. That doesn't mean we, you know, have a coup tomorrow. Um, those aren't things that I think work very well. Um, and I, and, and I think the sort of boring unsatisfying answer to a lot of maybe listeners is that a lot of this might be a hundred, 200 year process Mm -hmm. and it might actually be happening already. (laughs) And, um, And, and we have to keep it moving forward intellectually and we have to make our case and we can, we have to not get too grandiose that there's going to be some great moment of triumph in this, um, in our lifetime. I don't think we're going to
0: declare victory for libertarianism. uh, Yeah, no,
1: (laughs) exactly. Um, right, right. So we have to really believe in this if we want to, because, because we're not going to get that kind of payoff, I don't think. But, um, but This actually has a parallel to the writing I do about technology, which a lot of it says when you're in the midst of a technological revolution, you usually don't know it's happening because it's happening so slow that the way we talk about technology when we look at history is so fast that once it's happening around us, feels so slow that it can't be the same thing, but it is because when you're talking about history, you're talking about decades at a time. Like
0: Jeff Bezos Um, just starts a bookstore and then slowly before we know it, we look up at like 20, 30 years later and, uh, you know, somehow we're pressing a button and getting anything we want delivered to our house.
1: (laughs) Right. And I think that all of this in the end speaks more towards the world of individual freedom that we want because, you know, everybody says- um, oh, Will millennials identify as socialist. And, and, and there has been no better development for libertarian commentary on the Internet in the last few years than the socialist millennials. We love talking about it. And, but, but what ticks me off a little bit, and I've written a couple of articles about this, and I've been on TV about it a couple of times, is a lot of people seem to not want to get past the outrage. Um, and frankly, we're the ones with the voices about why markets are good. And if all we're gonna do is be outraged, then we're not telling them, and that's why they don't know. <laughs> so it, it really does have to do with, and but, but what I think is that this generation has more intuitive comfort with the idea of a bottom-up network than anybody has in history um, in, in just the way that they communicate and the way that they use technology. So I think they have some of this framework um, and a lot of it is, um, I think, first of all, being able to portray it as a source of change rather than a, short, uh, a source of the status quo. It's amazing how many people think that libertarians want the status quo. Right,
0: yeah. um,
1: it, it, it's a, and it's a complete misreading. And a lot of it has to do with that difference between free markets that are you know information learning evolutionary processes which is sort of the austrian way that's not ascendant right now and then the standard econ 101 way
0: I think libertarians, many libertarians often make the mistake of not that they believe this, but acting this way mm-hmm. in conversations where we'll argue against the government program, argue it should go away, but fail to sort of present the positive end of that. And then that makes people think, well, mm-hmm. you just want the status quo of the problem, exactly. whatever that problem is without the government. You know, we need, we need yeah. to find a way to present the, uh, we get the positive stuck. vision.
1: We get stuck, especially right now, playing defense against the left a lot. And um, it is easy to do that i will fully admit i do that plenty too you can you know see the stuff i've written about the job guarantee or the you know sometimes you get these enormous policies and you're like okay this this writes itself but um we have to but but the problem we face the challenge we face is that people and and i get this from my friends on the left who are you know really good about reading my stuff a lot is they'll say well what's your solution and that's, How much time do you have? <laughs> well, that's the really hard part, because
0: right. it's not a sound if
1: part. we knew the solution, if we knew what the, the ultimate solution looks like in a way they want to be able to picture something, we could just do it, right? The, the solutions that we, when we say market solutions and get government out of the way, we're not actually saying nothing. We're saying that society is going to evolve these structures that handle these things much better, that take account of the information much better. And sometimes it's very hard to describe to somebody who's stuck in a mindset of what's this going to look like, the answer is X, Y, and Z. It's, it's very um, hard to sell. So I don't know.
0: It's, it's very hard to sell. I don't know. Yes. Uh, oh. that really an answer? But that, that, Obviously we need to put things <laughs> a little bit better, but in many ways that is the answer yeah. with the market. No, well, I, I, I joked that a lot
1: of both my policy and technology writing sort of comes down to like fun ways of saying, I don't know. Right. Um, they, <laughs> I, I was giving this, t- this talk in Texas and a couple of places about technology and it was all basically about how we don't know what's going to happen. And all these people would raise their hands at the end and they would say, oh, well, that, that's, that's so great. That was so interesting. Anyway, what's going to happen? <laughs> and it was like they hadn't heard the entire thing. Right.
0: Well, Max, uh, I really do appreciate you coming yeah. on and, and sharing your story today. I think we Absolutely. can kinda learn a lot about it, not only from your path, but sort of your perspective on things, especially totally. uh, through the prism of your rebuttal of Tyler Cowen's article. So I definitely mm-hmm. post that in today's show notes. Uh, I also want to end with just a brief little challenge, something we already said that would be really hard to do, but I'm, that's why it's called a challenge. Uh, I just want to you know, visualize here. You you find yourself mm-hmm. sharing an elevator with someone. Perhaps it's an Elizabeth Warren supporter, uh, just to make it easier. <laughs> Maybe they're wearing a Elizabeth Warren t-shirt, and mm-hmm. uh, but they're... they're For some reason, they're open-minded to hear your view, and you got maybe 90 seconds, as long as it takes to get down to the bottom, to at least get them to open their mind about the ideas of free markets as a solution. I'll do it even faster
1: because sometimes you can get a little slogan that's kind of cheap, but it does open people's mind. I'll say Mm -hmm. that if you look at those problems out there, they're all really complicated problems, and they all involve tons of moving parts. Do you think it's a better idea to solve those problems by evolution or by intelligent design? Mm, Done.
0: <laughs> Ooh, turn you can turn the religious argument right back on. Right,
1: right, right. I actually wrote a I wrote something about that too. Um, but but I do think that that's that kind of evolutionary force and thinking and stuff. It's stuff the left is predisposed to like, like when I first said that to my mom, she was pissed at me because mm-hmm. it was like, um, it, it, it,
0: it was, it was, it was tough for her to contend with. Right. That's something um, I would say. Why are you using it yeah, on me? Yeah,
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um, so I think that, the that, 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 that those sorts of things and, you know, presenting it as a force for change is a way to get a hold of people. And I'll just end by saying that, I can see, I can envision a circumstance and I'm not rooting for anybody in this election. I mean, I, this election shows what the problems are. But you know, if we see, I think there's a good chance the far left is going to sputter in the primaries because I think that they look very important on the internet, but we don't know. And I think if you get that and then you get kind of a bland, uninspiring, centrist Democratic candidate lose to Trump. Um, I think that moment is maybe a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reach some people, not the whole left by any means, but some people, some more free-thinking people on the left, maybe like me, who maybe stop at that moment and say to themselves, this isn't working.
0: All right, this has been rejected. Now, can you listen to me for five minutes while while Orange Cheeto goes at it for another four years?
1: Exactly, exactly. We might get five minutes of their time. Mm
0: (laughs) All right, Max. Well, again, I really appreciate your time. Yep. Uh, before I let you go, I want you to uh, take a minute to just let everybody know maybe a little bit more about what you're doing over at AIER, yep. and feel free to plug yep. away on anything you got going, on anything yes. else you got going on, any projects you got in the works. The floor is yep. yours.
1: Um, yes. Oh my goodness. AI, um, in the last couple of years, AIER has been sort of recharged. Um, a lot of that is thanks to Ed Stringham, who we talked about. A lot of that is due to the sort of genius at imbuing organizational sense of purpose that is Jeffrey Tucker. Um, I think people know him for his articles and his speeches. He is really a sort of organizational force of nature in a way. And and that's really a lot of what um, a lot of what he does. He's assembled really incredible commentators from the folks, the in-house researchers we have um, to a lot of professors who people might know out there like um, Pete Becky and Don Boudreau. So we have daily content commentary. That's just wonderful. We have myself writing the kind of stuff I've talked about. We have Phil Magnus, who is sort of a a hero in debunking many of the bad uses of economics on the left and some on the far right too. Um, Definitely check his stuff out. Um, Peter Earl, who writes a lot about technology also. Um, And, we are um, always have a few more big projects in the works. I think I'm going to start taking a look this spring at some of the more some of the issues with this hipster antitrust that, 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 that I've written about, which is which is on the left saying, well we need to use antitrust laws to, to make companies do what we want them to do. Um, we have a ton of programs of internship and, and if you're a graduate student in economics um, programs, Go to our site, AIER.org. We have a beautiful property. We have a ton going on, and it's just a really fortunate time to be here. All
0: right, well, Max Gulker, thanks again for coming on today. Keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. We will do our best. All right, friends. I hope you enjoyed my conversation there with Max Gulker of AIER. I I had the pleasure of meeting him at Porkfest last year, and I was happy to bring him on to talk about his journey, how he came from the left to find the ideas of liberty. And this is something that I touched upon in my speech that I gave this past weekend at the California State Party Libertarian Convention. I'm not sure what order I'm supposed to say those words in. Is it uh, State Libertarian Party of California Convention? Is it California Libertarian Party State Convention? I don't know. I just mix it all up every time. But anyway, I gave a talk about what I've learned over the six plus years of interviewing hundreds of libertarians, and I spoke about the different pathways that people take to becoming libertarians, and one of those pathways I dubbed the bleeding heart slash former democrat slash progressive, and in some cases communist, in the, in the case of Walter Block. And I told his story as part of that speech. And you can listen to my interview with Walter Block, where he describes his conversion from communism to libertarian in episode nine of this podcast. I got Walter Block on Wednesday. Way, way back in 2013 when I first started the show. Of course, he's been on the show several times since then. But I really got to speak about my journey, about the journey of my guests, and uh, it was a really fun speech. So I'm going to make that speech available to members of the Lions of Liberty Pride, our supporters on Patreon. Of course, you can support this show on Patreon by heading over to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. We recently passed our goal of $1,500 a month Thank you so much to everyone out there who has supported us, who has sent us money. Even if you haven't sent us money, even if you just download the show, even if you just leave a review, a five-star review on iTunes is always very helpful to us. Even if you're just a casual listener, every single one of you has helped us along the way, has helped us get there because without listeners, we wouldn't have continued doing this for so long. We wouldn't have put all the effort into expanding this program and continuing to provide the coverage of the libertarian community that we we attempt to provide here at Lions of Liberty. So again, if you do want to help support us in this mission, in this journey, please do head over to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty where we have all sorts of bonus content to reward you with and all sorts of pledge levels including the recently filled up $100 a month pledge level where uh, listeners will get an ad on the show each and every week and again that spot is totally filled up we only have three of those to offer at any given time so you're going to have to wait if you want one of them right now but you can certainly pledge at any of our other levels starting at $5 a month you do get access to all of our bonus content you can even join for as little as $2 a month become a lion cub just get access to the secret Facebook group and some of our live streams if you just want to dip your toe in the water but I assure you you will not be disappointed we have a ton of bonus content including from the California State libertarian party convention this weekend Uh, we did a couple speeches that we'll make available once we get the audio of those and i also did a podcast with brian and michael bolden on saturday after we gave our talks that is currently available to members of the lions of liberty pride and of course as most of you know by now it's not just me here every monday with interviews with leaders in the libertarian movement you've also got brian mcwilliams every single wednesday with his unique brand of comedy culture Liberty, cursing, and all of that craziness each and every Wednesday on Electric Liberty Land. Brian spoke as well after me today, after I opened up for him, about how libertarians should be leading the way in comedy. So that's something else you'll be able to look for from the Lions of Liberty Pride. And of course, our good friend John Odermatt. Wraps things up every single Friday with his hard-hitting look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. Last week, he had a great guest, Mark Whitney, who I had the pleasure of meeting at the Libertarian State Party Convention, (laughs) which I always going to mix up the word order of uh, this past weekend in LA. So my friends, there will be more content coming. I'm hoping to provide a show full of some content from the Libertarian Party Convention next week. And until then, my friends, live long and live free.